look, hey, it is great to have you with us. Um, if you're just kind of joining with us or just jumping in, we, for since the beginning of February, we as a church have been going through a series all around time and hurry and busyness. And the framework that I've been using, all of this has been drawn from this one quote that Dallas Willard has said that I think just perfectly sums up the challenge of modern age. And I think the challenge that we as a church face, and I would venture to say that a lot of churches across this country are navigating. And he says this, in recommending someone who wants to live a gospel-fulfilled life, he says, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. There is nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. And so we've been navigating and talking about that from different angles. But today, I want us to start in a, a passage from Exodus. We're going to go and look at one of the stories of Israel. And so if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn there with me to Exodus 32. And we're going to be today just taking a moment to look at verses 1 through 8. So it's Exodus 32, 1 through 8. And this is Israel's story. Um, this is pretty early on their journey. In Exodus, God has taken them out of Egypt, and he's done the whole plagues, and he's taken them through the Red Sea, and he's led them up to this mountaintop where he's been giving them the Ten Commandments and instructions and the law. He's been instructing them as to what it means to be the people of God. And so we pick up on Israel's story here in chapter 32, verse 1. And it says this. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. And as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't even know what's happened to him. And Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and they brought them to Aaron. And he took what they had handed him and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar out in front of the calf and he announced, tomorrow there's going to be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and they sacrificed burnt offerings and they presented fellowship offerings. And afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and they got up to indulge in revelry. And then the Lord said to Moses, go down off this mountain because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I've commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it, they have sacrificed to it, and have said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather today, and we sit with your word, and we reflect on your story in our lives, Jesus, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would break through the fog of all the stuff that we're carrying, break through our busyness and our hurry, break through our rush, because Jesus, what we need more than anything today is to hear your voice, for you to remind us of who you are and who we are, and that we might live as your people afresh today again. So we ask that you would speak to us. In your name we pray, amen. So do you ever have those moments where you're so used to something, you don't even notice it around you anymore? 
Like when you're so used to it just being in your world that you kind of forget it's there. So for me, that, that was always very true of my childhood. So I grew up, obviously, you guys know, I grew up in Mexico City. And Mexico City is an incredible city. It is beautiful. It is filled with culture and arts and objectively, scientifically, the best food in the world. I don't care what you say. It is better than every other culture's. It's tip of the top. Mexican food just reigns supreme. In fact, I'm convinced that when Jesus comes back to Earth, before like doing the whole, like fixing the whole world, he's going to stop through Mexico City, get a bunch of tacos, fill his belly, and then go out and restore the world to justice and peace, because that's just the way it works. It's that good. But for all that I love about Mexico City, it does have some challenges. And one of them is the pollution. Now, Mexico City is really high up. Its altitude is incredibly high. And it's basically up in the mountains, there's this valley, almost like a bowl in the mountains. And it's up there that the Aztecs built the first city, and then the Spaniards came, and it quickly became the most populous city in Mexico, one of the most populous cities in the world. Which is great, beautiful views, lovely climate. But what happens when you get like 50 million cars in a bowl? got mountains all around, and those, that exhaust is running all day, every day. You get this. Mexico City, you can see it when you drive down, when you're leaving the mountains and you're driving down. When you're up in the mountains above the city, you can see this lovely blue sky, and then below, there's just this layer of gray, like as the smog just sits on top of the city, and then you go under it. But the thing is, once you're under it for a while, you don't notice it. People who came and visited are like, oh man, the pollution's really bad. But I grew up there and I was like, it's fine. Look, the sky's blue. I mean, we're in a city, so it's not like you can see this much sky, you can see that much sky because the building's all around you. And you're like, that patch is blue, it's fine. So you don't think anything of it. And so I spent my whole life being like, man, the pollution's ridiculous. I don't know what people are talking about. It's not that bad. And so I lived my whole life that way, assuming that was normal. Until I left Mexico City and I went to another country called Switzerland. Now, Switzerland and Mexico are about as far different from countries as you can get. Mexicans are like loose and relaxed, and the Swiss have like an organized time that you pick up the rubbish from the floor. Like it, their trains arrive at 6.32 and 30 seconds and not a second later. Like they are tight. And I remember being blown away the first time I went out into the countrysides of Switzerland, went up into one of the mountains, and this is what I was used to seeing. This is what my world looked like. And I assumed that's just what the sky looked like all the time until I went somewhere and realized it could look like this. And I got to Switzerland and I was literally blown away. The thing that my friends kept making fun of me for is I was like, but you can just see far. They're like, well, of course you can. I was like, no, no, you don't understand. You can see the mountains and the hills. Like, yeah, shouldn't you? And I was like, not in Mexico. If it's bad, you don't see the hills surrounding the city because the pollution blocks your line of sight. And it's so easy, like for me, it just blew my mind and it made me aware of how easy we can get used to the culture, the climate around us, and we can forget that there's a different way to live. And this whole time series for me has been really about trying to identify a layer of pollution that we live in. I would go so far as to say a cultural idol that we hold on to and that we worship and we don't even know that we're worshiping it because we can't even fathom there's a different way to be. And so over the course of the series, what we've been trying to do in this first half is before I give you anything practical, like go and do Sabbath, go and have a quiet time, I didn't want to give answers too quickly because the danger is if you just get answers without understanding that the view could be different, 
then you just try and do the same things for the same view. You, but you need to understand how different the world could look. And so over the course of the series, what we've been trying to do is identify the smog that we live in in the West. In the first week, we talked about hurry sickness, that often when you're caught in this sense of hurry and busy, it actually affects your health. Your mental health and your physical health deteriorate because you rush, 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 and you never rest. And then the, other, the following week, we talked about how in our culture, one of the idols that we have is we believe that you've got to speed up or you're going to get left behind. It's the reason why we value youth more than age, which is different in other cultures and other contexts. Other countries, if you get to the age of 80, you're revered, you have wisdom, you have something honorable. We, we make space for you on the street to walk. But in the West, if you get to the age of 80, you're irrelevant. You're, you don't keep up with the times. And so often, that's part of that smog as we feel compelled to keep rushing, to keep on top of things, to stay hip, to learn the t biggest tech, to learn that new thing, because we're afraid that if we fall behind, we're gone. In Western society, we have no value. And we've been talking about how that is a cultural idol. Actually, the way of Jesus doesn't need everything to be young or fast, but God has his own space. The, the Japanese theologian says that God has a speed and it's three miles an hour, which is the pace that humans walk. He walks at our pace. And then last week, um, if you haven't seen it, Becca did an incredible sermon um, here, Becca uh, O'Neill, and my goodness, it was, it was phenomenal. And she talked about the idol of biggering, this relentless need that we feel to have more, to do more, to grow more, to keep moving those things forward. And she, she talked about it and she framed it in such a good way, talking about how all these things, it's like markers of Babylon. And if you've been at our church, you know that one of our languages, one of the visions that we use is, how do we leave Babylon to discover the new Jerusalem? How do we leave the way of this world? How do we leave the smog to discover the mountains of Switzerland? That's our goal as a community. And Becca did one of the best sermons. If you haven't heard it, please go back and listen to it. It was phenomenal. And so today serves as like the midpoint to the series. I want to spend time talking about one more cultural idol, one more bit of the smog that we breathe and we don't even know that it's there. And we assume that it's good, but maybe Jesus has a different way. And then from here, after the sermon, we're going to start giving you some practical tips, some tools. If you want to slow down and fight God's time, what are some practical ways that you can do that? But today, I want to finish with one last bit of smog, one last cultural idol, and that is the idol of busyness, the favorite response to when someone asks you, how's your week been? Because I, I noticed, I've been watching and I've been listening to it, one of the most common things when I ask people like, hey, how's your day been? How's your week been? Or like when you get home from work, how's the day been? What's the number one response I hear from people? Ah, oh, busy. Good, but busy, busy. What's going on? How, how are things going in your family? Oh man, it's busy, it's just mental. Just running around from one thing to the next. Oh, what do you guys have planned for the future? Oh man, there's a lot, I don't know. We'll try and book something in in the next three weeks. We got, it's just life's really busy right now. Life's really, really hectic. Now what's funny about this is that um, busyness has changed. It's changed in the way that we talk about it. And you know that has changed because sociologists have gone back and looked there was one group from Harvard that was looking at the role that busyness had as a cultural value. And what they found was in 100 years, it has radically changed. 100 years ago, if you were wealthy, what was the thing that you did? You did no work. 
you knew you were an aristocrat, you knew you were wealthy or a titan of business, if you didn't have anything to do, if you could just leisure around. In fact, one of the funniest moments, if you are a Downton Abbey watcher, in the first season of Downton Abbey, which is about the, this great British aristocracy in the late 18th, early 20th century, um, one of the younger boys is out to get a job, and he says, yeah, I've got, a, I've got a new job that I'm going to, and the whole family turns and stares at him like, you what? I've got a job, I'm really excited about it. And the dad's like, but, but we need you here on the estate to just be a part of the estate. And he's like, oh, don't worry, there's lots of hours in the day. I get this time in the evenings, and he says, plus, I'll have the weekends. And then um, the old lady, Maggie, Maggie Smith, Maggie Smith, who plays this wonderful baron, he says, like, oh, I've got the weekends. And she turns and says, do pray, what are weekends? Because for her, the weekday and the weekend was no different. Life was leisure. There was no working time. And primo brands like Rolex or Rolls-Royce, when they would advertise 100 years ago, back in the early days, the way that they would advertise is they would show pictures of people playing tennis people sailing on yachts, people living calm life, drinking tea, uh, the Rolls Royce in front of the big estate. They pictured selling to people who had leisure as the prime ability. And everybody, if you wanted to move up the social ladder, if you wanted to show you were a person of like, I'm kind of cool, like I'm with it, you don't talk about how much you work, you talk about how you don't need to work. And what's fascinating is that over that time, it has radically shifted. Nowadays, the most wealthy people are busy people. And we celebrate that. Khloe uh, Kardashian, one of the first self-made billionaires, she's a young in influencer, she's my age, and she's got like, I don't know, $50 billion, an obscene amount of money. What's fascinating, Khloe Kardashian, she is celebrated because she's always hustling. She's always got another project on the go. She's got like billions of dollars. Does she need a project on the go? No. But she does. She's always got a new makeup line, a new tour, a new press release. She's promoting something new, always something new. Elon Musk, richest man in the world. One of the things that people love about him most is what, like, Elon Musk, do you live anywhere? He's like, no, nah, I don't have a big mansion or anything. In fact, you know, lots of days I uh, end up sleeping in my Tesla offices. I end up sleeping on the floor because I'm just there working all day. And we look at that and we go, wow, he's, he's in demand. He's a busy person. He's not wasting his time. He is up to things. A hundred years ago, they would have laughed someone like Elon Musk out of, this, out of the world. And nowadays, we look up to them. And here's the challenge. For us in a modern, secular New Zealand age, busyness is increasingly a status symbol. It is something that shows that we are important. We're in demand. We're the next cool thing. We're not forgotten. Everybody wants a piece of us. We're rushing about. We got lots of projects on the go. And that feels good, doesn't it? We all want to be that person. Everybody wants to socially climb the ladder. And busyness has become one of the new idols that we sacrifice to, hoping that it will give us the good life. And I genuinely mean that. When I talk about like busyness, and we read that passage in Exodus, I genuinely believe that I think for much of us in the West, busyness has become a cultural idol that we believe if we sacrifice enough to it, if we give enough to it, if we follow it faithfully enough, it will give us the life that we hope for. And so to journey and explore and tease that out, I want to share two stories with you, one from scripture and one from my personal life. 
Because in scripture, I want to follow the story of the golden calf in Israel as they turn to an idol, even when the presence of God is thundering on a mountain above them. And then in some of my own personal journey as a recovering busyness idol worshiper, that God grabbed a hold of me last year and I'm still finding new ways to untangle myself from this idol that had built up such a place in my life. So let's go to Exodus 32. Sorry about that. Now, this is a fascinating story. This is like Israel's first flirtation with idolatry. The first of many. They follow this pattern a lot if you follow the story of Israel. But this one is so interesting because it begins on their journey where they have seen God do the most incredible things any nation has ever done. Like they recorded in Exodus talking about something like this has never happened before where God chooses a people of slaves, and through mighty works, he draws them out through miracles, signs, and wonders. I mean, he splits the Red Sea, and this ragtag group of slaves is able to defeat the greatest known military in the world at that time. Egypt was the military power of the region, and these group of slaves just walked right out with no repercussions. It's incredible, a story that's just phenomenal. And they cross the Red Sea, and then they end up at Sinai, and they go onto the mountain, and God has done these incredible wonders to them. He spoke to them face to face. In fact, God, the very first 10 commandments, God delivers to them audibly. And you know it's, important, you know it's powerful and terrifying because after God speaks audibly, Israel literally cowers on the ground and says, oh Lord, do not speak to us directly again. Please talk to us through your servant Moses, for we cannot stand your, like, the power of your presence. It's incredible, right? And so then Moses goes up, and God's doing exactly what, he's at, what they've asked. And God is working with Moses through everything. And Becca talked last week about the feasts and the seasons and Sabbath, all these principles that are so important for them to become the people of God. But it's taking a while. Moses is up there for over 40 days and 40 nights. And the people are just waiting down below. And this is where scripture gives me hope because I identify with the people of Israel and I think everyone in the West would identify with the people of Israel. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down, even there to a people that had nowhere to go, nowhere to be and nothing to do except for what God told them to do, they were like, this is taking a bit long. Can we hurry up? I got things to do. I got places to be. We're a busy people. But God is not operating on their time frame. And this is the challenge. The reason we turn to idols is because God does not operate the way that we want him to. He doesn't fit into our box. He's not controllable. He's not easy. He's not manageable. He's other. He's uncontrollable. We don't understand him. And so that fear and that pressure can be difficult. And that pressure comes on them, and they need the good life. They're terrified out in the desert. And they're looking for stability, and they're looking to grow. And so what do they do? They turn to the cultural idols that they were used to in the past. They turn to the cultural idols that had made other places successful. And so they went to Aaron and they said, please, can you make us gods who will go before us? And as for this this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Again, they want something visible, something tangible, something they can work with. And they believe, now this sounds crazy for us because we're modern and we're like, who would put that much faith into some inanimate object? But for them and in their worldview, 
This was the most stable, secure way to the good life, is you got an idol that carried the presence of the deity that you wanted, and then you could have it on command. You could speak to it when you needed to. You could sacrifice to it when you wanted to, and it would work on your framework and your time, work, time base. And so that's what they wanted. And how similar busyness is for us. Now, sure, we don't have like physical idols that we worship, but how easy it is for us that when pressure comes or we feel insecure, we turn to the cultural thing that we think is working for everybody else and we hope that it will work for us. And for me, that was a huge part of my story. Even for us, as we planted this church coming up on four years ago, I noticed as I reflect and as God did a number on me last year, I look at my own journey and basically from 2018 when we started, I jumped onto, I think, a train of busyness that didn't stop until last year. Because there's so much to do in a church plant. I want this to be a great, successful church plant. I want it to work. I want it to draw people. I want people to like us. I want us to be hip church. I want us to be a relevant church. Well, and what do churches need to be hip and relevant? Well, we should be busy. All the best pastors that I know of are really busy. Man, they're like, they've got podcasts on the go. They're meeting with people and they're praying with people. Gosh, I should probably be a part of that. And as a church, we should probably get busy and we should get some programs up and running. Let's get a youth group running because no one will come if we don't have a youth group. And let's get some small groups running because no one will stay if we don't have a small group. We've got to get all these programs up and running. And that's nothing wrong with programs and there's nothing wrong with ministries. But if I reflect critically upon myself, I think that I hoped that these programs would do what a calf would do, provide stability and security and make me feel safe in my own personal sense of identity. So we worship. Andrew Root, who talks about busyness, he talks about like the idol that it plays in our society. He says, busyness signals that though we're stretched, we're in demand. We're living fast. We're embracing our opportunities. It signals to other modern people that we are flourishing, that we are living the good life. If we're busy, it's like having a Rolex on our wrist, a Cadillac in our garage, but it's probably more valuable than that. We're in demand. We don't need that stuff. We are busy people. Now, the challenge with idols are, is they can help you feel emotionally secure and they can make you feel comfortable, but they always take more than what they give. Idols will always cost you more than they will ever give you back in return. And you see that already immediately in the story of Israel. They asking for an idol that can give that emotional security, present them as strong and capable for everyone else. And what does Aaron say back to them? Okay, first things first, take off all the gold that you have, all your precious metals, everything that your sons and daughters have, bring it to me and we have to melt it down. It always is a cost. We, every idol that we worship, we think it will give us security, but it always costs. And for Israel, if you follow the story of Exodus, it's fascinating because they left Egypt loaded with gold. Want to know how? Because after the final plague and Egypt relented, God instructed Moses to tell Pharaoh for all the Egyptians to give the Israelites gold and silver, precious jewels, finances, and an inheritance because these were slave people that had nothing. They had no capital. They had no structure. And so God sends them out of Egypt with an inheritance for their kids and their grandkids to set up a new nation. This is their inheritance that they're going to world build and do what they need to to be the people of God in Israel. But out on the desert, 
in need of something more secure, it immediately costs them that inheritance. They melt down all of the treasure that God has given to them and they mold it into the shape of a calf, hoping that it will give them the peace and the security that they value. Busyness comes at a cost. We think it will give us emotional security. We think it'll make us in demand. We think it'll give us all the things. And particularly if you're busy in your job, oh, I just, I'm just gonna work harder. I'm gonna get to that next step and then I'll calm down. Oh, my family, I'm just gonna go to this next stage. I'll work there and once I'm there, things will chill out. I'll just sprint a little bit more and then we'll get everything that we need and we can calm down. But what we've seen is that is a never ending rat race. You sprint to the next thing, and once you're there, you sprint to the next thing after that. And then you sprint to the next thing after that. And because we chase busyness to give us our sense of self-worth and value, we end up running ourselves into the ground, and it costs us the very things that bring us real life. And as I reflect on my journey over those two years, kind of moving into busy church and being a busy pastor, the shame was it, it cost me a lot. And the real frustrating thing for me is that it wasn't that I was even that efficient. In fact, the busier I got, the less efficient I got. The busier I got, the less stuff I actually got done. And it was a regular pattern for me that I would get up in there in the office and there's all these things I gotta do. I gotta call this person, I gotta email this person, we gotta look at this project, I gotta go talk with these groups. And I'm like, okay, that's great. And so I'd start working on it. And then I remember this other thing that I gotta do. So I'd jump over there and I gotta do that and I'd work on that for a few minutes. And I remember there's something else I gotta do. And I'd jump over there and I'd work on that for a few minutes. And then I'd get interrupted with a phone call and that phone call is really important. And I'm really liking that they call me because they wanna ask my advice. And sometimes that's taxing, but also it feels a little bit good inside that people still value me and want my opinion. So I'm gonna stop and do that phone call and I'll go with them. And then the day finishes and I've done 5% on 10 things and finished none of them. So then I get home feeling guilty and ashamed because I didn't do any of the things I said I wanted to do that day. So what do I do? Well, I need to be busy. I need to get these things done. That's where my sense of value is coming from. So I say to Haley, hey Haley, look, I just gotta work on a couple things this evening because I've just fallen behind. All right, cool. So then I'm there with my kids, but I'm not really there with my kids. They're playing and in my head, I'm thinking about that next thing that I gotta do. And in fact, the more that they play and they get in my way, the more I honestly start to resent them. Not because they're bad, but because don't they know that there's more important things? I'm just really pressured right now, kids. I don't have time to watch that with you. I don't have time to do that game with you. I'll put you to bed, please go to sleep. No, I don't have time. I'm just gonna do a quick prayer tonight because I've got more important things I've gotta get to. Then I'd sit down and while Haley would be doing something else, I'd jump back into the computer and try and get stuff done. And I told myself I'd just do that once or twice. But to my shame, I think one of the reasons I hit a wall last year really hard is that my rhythm by, what last year, 2021, is I could easily spending three, four nights a week doing that. And then often on Fridays, which are supposed to be my day off and my Sabbath, I'd then spend Friday morning getting stuff done because I hadn't gotten stuff done during the week. The busier I got, the less efficient I got. And what did it cost me? It began to cost me my rest with my family. My kids no longer became my kids, they became objects to my hurry. They became objects to my idol, that good life that I was seeking because I got so much validation off of being a pastor with a busy church doing busy things for busy people. It costs, and it costs churches too. This isn't just my own personal story. I know of lots of churches that we feel compelled to be busy churches. The best, healthiest churches are busy churches, aren't they? 
The churches that we look up to and respect are the ones with lots of things going on, lots of staff, lots of programs, lots of ministries, things happening all the time. You go onto their website, what's the first thing you see? A calendar with all their events. Oh my goodness, what a busy church. God must be really doing cool things there. Wow. And then when we choose churches, it's easy that we want to choose a church that's busy because we're busy people and we know that that's important. So we want to choose a busy church to be a part of. So we go and we we be a part of this busy church. And then we feel like, oh, hey, guys, more people are joining, but they really want these programs. And so we turn to the existing members who are already serving lots and we say, hey, guys, we need to run a few more programs because we want to keep these people here. Can you run something else? (sighs) Uh, Yeah, yeah, I can probably do that. Okay, we'll run that busy. All right, so now we got lots of projects and people are busy because we're running busy programs for busy people to keep them happy on their busy lives. And then me as a preacher, man, I know that your lives are busy. Your lives are really busy. And so, man, I don't want to burden you with difficult things like repentance or, I don't know, like heavy theology or teach you about the incarnation. You're busy people. I've got to help you in your life. So you know what? I've got to start preaching messages about, look, here's peace. Here's rest. Come in here for a Sunday and have a breather. And what happens is, if we're not careful, faith and church and my spirituality and your spirituality, we use Jesus as a band-aid when we fall off the treadmill so that we can get back on on Monday. We come to church on Sunday to hear refreshing words that we have enough energy so that we can get back on the treadmill on Monday and run as fast as we can until we crash on Saturday. And then we get back to church on Sunday and hear an encouraging word. And then we run the rest of the week and we get caught in this cycle. And it's like the pollution of Mexico City. It is eating us out from the inside. It was eating me out from the inside. I became tired, disconnected. And that is what you see in the story of Exodus after they worship this golden calf, and God tells, um, God tells Moses to go down and deal with them, and they go through repentance, and they go through this process, and now they have to go, but listen to what changes in the relationship. See, before God led them out of Egypt, but listen what happens here in Exodus 33, the very next chapter. Then the Lord said to Moses, saying, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go to the land that I promised. I'll send an angel before you, Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but listen, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way, which is a little bit terrifying for us to hear as modern listeners, but if you think of just dealing with people, if you're in any people management job, any people management job has thought, I cannot see those people and if I see them, I might blow them away if I see them. And this is what happens. It's devastating for the people of Israel because they lose the presence of God. They become disconnected with the very thing that made them unique. They become disconnected with the very thing that gave them hope and life. The only reason they got out of Egypt is because God's presence was with them. The only reason they made it across the Red Sea is because God's presence was with them. But their love for this idol, their journey towards this idol meant that it was disconnecting them from the very thing that they needed. And that is what happens to us. Busyness, hurry, rush, what happens is it disconnects us from the very things that we need. And for me, to my shame, and I don't say it lightly, I genuinely look back and with regret in the way that it disconnected me from God. Most of my spirituality became about running projects for the church. Most of my prayer times were about how do I prepare sermons or how do I pray with people to get them ready. Most of my devotional times were used about when I'm going to meet with a small team and I've got to give them a a little devotional. My devotional is going to be used for that. My whole spirituality became used in service of the busy. And my kids, I became disconnected from my family. 
man, I regret seeing my kids as an obstacle, not as ministers of God that placed in my life, as gifts to me. And I became disconnected with myself. And that was the main thing that I got challenged with. By the end of last year, I was hollowed out. And I couldn't, I, like, I couldn't even just be still with myself because there was so much going on. I felt disconnected from God, others, and myself. And that's the danger of busyness and time and hurry. It's the reason I've been barking on about it for four weeks because I think the greatest challenge, one of the greatest challenges that we face in the West is we become too busy for the things that matter. And then as a church, we get disconnected from God, we get disconnected from ourselves, and we get disconnected from other people. And that's why I'm pushing so hard on this, because I think if we want to live in the new Jerusalem, it has to start with leaving that smog of hurry and busyness to find a new way. So how do we get there? And we've talked about this for a few weeks, and I want to give you a big theological picture that Moses understood. The cure to time sickness and the cure to busyness is not more time. It doesn't matter how much people tell you that you will never get enough time in your day to do all the things that a busy life will think you need to do. It won't happen. But there is hope. Mo Moses, after negotiating with God and they go on this journey for a couple of days, Moses gets in the face of God and he says this, God, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us out from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and your people unless you come with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Moses said, we are not moving anywhere else until we regain that connection with you. Until we are unified with you, there's not even a point us walking another step. It all hinges on this. And so the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by my name. I know you by name. So then Moses said, one of my favorite verses in all of scripture, okay, God, show me your glory. And in Exodus 33, it's one of the most beautiful passages where Moses has rise to the top of this hill and God's glory passes in front of him. And when he comes down from that mountain, he is physically shining to the people of Israel. He is shining with God's presence because he has been unified with God. The cure for time sickness and the cure for hurry is not more time. But the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of relationship. If you are struggling with hurry and busyness, you will never get enough time to do all the things that you need to do. If you are looking for reprieve, it starts with regaining connection. I mean, the very basis of the universe is, is relationship. God who formed all things himself is relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all mutually loving, caring for, and serving one another. And it is out of that love relationally that all of creation is born. And then he gives birth to humanity and Adam, he walks with him in the garden. Eve, he walks with them in the garden and that's where their life comes from. The very basis of creation is in connected relationships connected with God, connected with yourself, and connected with others. Jesus says that explicitly in John 17. When he prays for us, he raises his eyes in prayers, and Jesus says, Father, it is time. Display the bright splendor of your son so that the son, in turn, may show your bright, bright splendor. You put him in charge of everything human so that he might give real and eternal life to all in his care. Now listen to this, church. If you are weary and tired and busy and disconnected, this is real eternal life, that they would know you, 
that they would know you, the one and the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The cure for time sickness and hurry is this. It is union with God. It is relationship. It's union with God where you know that God loves you, where you walk with him. And when you are struggling or afraid or scared, you can run to the arms of a father and you can hear his voice remind you that you are a son and daughter of God and that nothing that anyone says can change your worth at all. For me, it became a huge moment when I realized that God loved me as a pastor, whether I gave good sermons or awful ones. It became known that God had called me to this church, whether I did everything perfectly or terribly, I was called and I was loved because God loved me and he didn't need me for any of the things that I could do. In fact, one of the most frustrating things last year was all the best things that God did really had nothing to do with my strengths. I mean it. All the best things that happened in our church community happened when I was like, oh, this isn't going well, I need help, I'm really insecure, can someone help me with this? And then God does incredible things. He draws together people and there's leaders who show up, people who help. I hear stories of people caring for and loving one another. I hear groups that are caring and praying for one another, meals that are going out. I organize none of it. Come on. I'd worked so hard to be a busy pastor and all the great things God did was through my weaknesses, not my strengths. There is life that comes from knowing that you are loved, not for anything that you can give to God, but simply because of who you are. Life comes from relationship with others. My goodness, the ability to sit down with my wife and be honest about where I was. I wept in the living room as I just was like, I don't know what to do. And I was so ashamed, deeply ashamed. And you're terrified of being rejected. I cannot explain to you the presence of God that ministered to me through Haley who spoke to me saying, I love you. It's gonna be okay. Transformation happens when you are able to bear your soul in front of other people and hear the word of God of affirmation from someone else's voice beside yourself. Union in relationship with people that you can trust on, depend on when things are sick, people that you're not afraid to get on the phone on and be like, everything is terrible, I need you at my house in five minutes, and having them there, that brings life. And finally, being present with yourself. How many of us myself included, spend most of our nights, the last thing that we do before we go to sleep is staring at our phone. Because for many of us to sit there quietly and think on the day brings too much pressure and anxiety, so we scroll until we physically can't keep our eyes open any longer. We are literally using this to hide from ourselves even at night when we're all by ourselves. The joy to be able to look at yourself and be like, this is where I'm at, this is what I carry, and it's gonna be okay. Those moments bring life, real life, abundant life. And from that point, last year, I felt like I was hitting a space of burnout. I probably wasn't there. Some people have medical burnout that's much more severe. I was not in that space. But I had difficulty having capacity for things. And it was in this process, not changing my schedule. I'm still not super efficient. I'd like to be a lot more efficient, but I'm not. It was this that brought back my capacity. It was this that gave me the ability to like live and have joy and navigate difficulty. I hesitate to think how I would have navigated COVID had I not had this repentance moment with Jesus because busyness would have torn me apart in the midst of that. God in his goodness brought me to that. So we're gonna finish 
and we're going to lead into communion. But I want to share one story. So what does that look like? That's all good in theory, right, Colin? And that's all, sounds cool. Union with God, yourself and others. How do you see that? How do you live that? And I can't share what that's going to be like for everyone, but I want to share with you one of the key ways that God broke through to me. And it was through my kids. My kids that for most of my hurried life were an obstacle to the good life. That good life, that flourishing life that I dreamt of, my kids hindered me from that. But there's this fascinating thing. You know that verse that I read to you all the time where Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest? I read that all the time because I think it's like the best gospel message for modern Western stressed out people. Right before that verse, Jesus says something really interesting. He'd been, he'd been talking about how all these towns weren't understanding the gospel, about how he'd been doing all these miracles and Tyre and Sidon and no one was getting it. And then Jesus said something fascinating. This is right before the, the yoke passage. So at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, and you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, this is what you were pleased to do. For us who are busy, and for me who is busy, do you know who helped me to encounter a life outside of that smog? It was my kids. It was my kids that genuinely ministered to me in profound ways. It was days where I came home for lunch and I was busy and I had to go home and eat something and Cora bothers me saying, Daddy, what are your favorite colors? I don't know, red, blue, and green. Don't bother me, Cora. I've got more important things to do. And then 20 minutes later, she comes back with a drawing that she's made for me in red, green, and blue with a picture of me and her holding hands and a note on the back that says, I love you, Daddy. And I was so busy. And there, through this four-year-old girl, the presence of God ministered to me in profound ways. Here, I've had days, even in this season, where it's busy, there's COVID, I've got to manage all these things, and my kids are doing swimming lessons, they're doing it down at Bartlett's, and it's really tough for Haley to manage all the kids, and so one day Haley's like, please, can you look after Eden while I go take the other two to swimming lessons? And I was like, gosh, Haley, I'm really busy. I have a lot of things to do. I don't know if I can manage that. All right, just bring her here, I don't know, I'll shove her in front of an iPad or something, I've got stuff to do. And then I get here, and Eden walks through the door, and she just smiles and shouts, Daddy! She comes and just gives me this huge hug, picks up a ball and throws it at me and says, catch, and then runs away laughing. And again, in the door, I break down in tears because I'm suddenly reconnected with what the gospel of the kingdom of heaven is. We think it's in busyness, but it's actually in relationship. And the reason kids are our ministers is because kids live out that truth better than adults do. This last month, every Sunday, I've been asking kids, what's the best thing that's been happening in your week? I don't know if you've noticed this, but kids always pick something relational. Sure, it's something that they do, but it's always they did it with this person. Do you know, one story that's never going to change, like, that's never going to leave my brain is, I think the first, one of the first weeks we did this, I think it was a passported service, and it was a Sunday where Ken was doing a building announcement, and he had just announced that I might get in trouble for saying this. I don't know, I'm going to say it anyway. Here we go. Um, he just announced for the first time that we'd had that $2 million donation come through and that the building consents were going through and that really building was going to start in March. What an incredible notice for a church of our age and our stage. He gave this incredible story of God's provision. And what was fascinating was people were like, you got a few claps and a couple of yays, but it was a pretty muted response in the room. And I was like, oh, that's kind of, that's interesting. 
And then, a little bit later, I get up there with some chocolates, and I ask, like, hey, what's a good thing that's happened? And Luca, Luca McNichol, he's the only kid who was brave enough to get up that Sunday. It was almost a flop, but he gets up there, and we ask him, Luca, what's been the best part of your week? And he's like, um, I got to hang out with my grandma. And the room erupts in cheers. Literally, this room erupts in clapping and cheers and joy. Want to know why? Because I think Luca ministered to us with the kingdom of heaven in that moment. He reminded us of what's really important. We get stuck with busyness and we get stuck with rush. And Luca gets up there, six years old, and he says, you know what? I got to hang out with grandma. And it was like God's presence filled the room and we all got a breath of fresh air outside of the smog being like, oh yeah, that's what really matters. For me, and I would encourage you, like in my journey, and not everybody has kids, but as a parent with young kids, the greatest thing that God has done is revealing to me my children as ministers to me of a different way of living, of a non-hurried, non-busy life. And when their interruptions come, I don't fight them anymore. I welcome them as the interruptions of Jesus himself, stopping to remind me of what is most important. And it's inconvenient? Absolutely. Are they perfect? No. Did I fight with them last night because they didn't go to sleep till 9 p.m.? Yes, definitely. Like, it's still human. But every one of those interruptions that used to be obstacles to my personal life now become the ministry of God himself, drawing me back to God's rhythms, not busy rhythms, his rhythms. And church, I don't want us to live worshiping a golden calf that's going to eat us out from the inside. I believe God is offering us a life outside of the smog of Mexico City, but a life of air and pace and breadth and connection and capacity of abundant life. When Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and life abundantly, he's not just talking about heaven, he's talking about a different way of being now. And that is on offer. But it begins not with productivity schemes, not with getting more time, not even with just slowing down. It starts with rebuilding connections with God, with others, and with yourself.